Hey, thanks for listening to Zero Brightness. If you'd like to hear more and help support the show, you can head to patreon.com slash zero brightness or find links to all our socials at zerobrightness.com. So I played a game over the weekend called Madison. And I'm going to talk about that game. Monica's actually going to come on and talk with me about that game because she played it with me. We played it together, passing the controller, classic shit. But before we get to that, and that's going to be out in a couple days, I thought it'd be interesting to talk about the context in which this game resides because I kind of completely by accident have been covering over the last few years the development of this micro genre of horror video games. Now, the micro genre that this game Madison belongs to is something that I've given a lot of different names while discussing it. I've called these games walking sims, I've called them hide em ups, I've called them first person exploration based horror games, I've called them haunted house games, I've called them fun house games. Like, there's so many different ways you could describe this genre or style of horror game. But the one that I always land on is first person exploration based horror games. And I think it's because that really sums up everything about the genre. They're generally games that lack combat and they also eschew most traditional video game mechanics. The games in this style mostly have you just walking around, experiencing an environment, and experiencing a story. These games largely stem from the work of Frictional Games, a company that I've covered pretty extensively on the show because I am a pretty big fan overall and a massive fan of their 2015 game, Soma. The game that really got this genre going, however, was their game, Amnesia, which came out in 2010. Amnesia was a huge deal, and for a number of different reasons. First and foremost, it felt fresh and new. It was a shot in the arm for the horror genre, and one that it sorely needed. Throughout the 2000s, the survival horror mold, which had provided the basis for pretty much all of the big and notable releases within the horror video game genre, had grown increasingly stale. It went from giving us fresh and exciting games like the Fatal Frame and Silent Hill sequels to giving us really uninspired and kind of boring games like, well, pretty much any of the super late PS2 horror games. These games aren't bad, but they all share the same kind of vibe, which is that they're too long and they don't really contain any new ideas. Personally, I have a lot of nostalgia and even fondness for a lot of these games, but replaying them, it's just not very interesting or exciting. When you compare it to that late PS1 or early PS2 stuff, there's just so much more energy and life in those games because you could see the devs trying new things, trying new ideas, and getting excited about their successes and sometimes even their failures. By the time the 7th gen rolled around, survival horror was pretty much done. 
devs weren't really giving us anything new or exciting, players had grown tired of it, and with the release of Resident Evil 4 and the success of a number of games that were heavily inspired by it, horror's transition to more action-based games was complete. In terms of big, marquee console releases of horror games, we were mostly getting stuff that borrowed the aesthetics and visual style of horror, but mechanically and in terms of gameplay were much more traditional action games. Games that were, you could say, third-person shooters, first-person shooters, shooter games, uh, games where you shoot a gun, um, games where you have a gun, and then you also have ammo that you can pick up for the gun and then um, the gun shoots the ammo at enemies, you know, things like that. Amnesia then was incredibly refreshing. It was a game that didn't even bother with combat and put all of its emphasis on creating a vibe and using subtle cues to create terror in the player. Beyond that, it also put a lot of emphasis on storytelling. There was a ton of voiceover, there was a ton of writing involved in the game. The game was really trying to tell you a tale, both in the things that happened as you were walking around a super creepy and surreal manner, but also via more traditional storytelling means that it was borrowing from other genres like films and literature. To me, Amnesia always felt like an attempt to update an old point-and-click adventure game for the modern age while mixing in the visceral scares of the survival horror genre. It also borrowed some very, very basic gameplay stuff like an inventory system and some collectible notes, but generally speaking, it was kind of tossing the whole survival horror mold out the window and starting fresh. The impact of Amnesia was massive. Frictional Games Gambit worked and people were super excited about this new kind of horror game, but it wasn't just because of the game itself. As we discussed in the episode about Amnesia, the marketing and the cultural reaction to this game was just as important as the game itself. The marketing tried to position the game the same as you would a major release horror movie. It showed people freaking out in the dark, playing the game, losing their minds. It was basically trying to convince you that it was the scariest game ever. But it turns out that this marketing campaign was mostly unnecessary because streaming had recently become pretty popular and streamers were flocking to this game. The opportunity to play something where they could show their outsized reactions and get creeped out while people watched them and donated money was, well, priceless. It's easy to be cynical about it, especially for me as someone who's not a fan of streamers or streaming, but there is something kind of nice about this whole phenomenon, not just because it got a lot of people interested in horror games and horror gaming, but also because it does hark back to the original sort of communal nature of horror media. When we go back to the origins of it, it's, you know, people telling ghost stories around a campfire, but even more recently, it was people going to movie theaters to experience scary stories together. People watching streamers play video games has a little bit of that same vibe. And even if it's not something that I personally partake in, I see how it can be fun and entertaining and why it's important to the genre as a whole. 
It really does feel like Amnesia unlocked something within the wider video game community relating to horror games, and the ripple effect of this game was pretty massive. Because streamers were now seeking out more games like Amnesia to play on stream, and gamers were now seeking out more horror games in this style, we got a bunch of Amnesia-inspired releases over the next few years. You can kind of lump them into two categories overall. On the one hand, you had cheap crap made for streamers to scream over, stuff like the Slenderman game, you know the one I'm talking about. And on the other hand, you had more well-produced, fully realized products like Outlast. Outlast came out in 2013, and it was another big turning point for this style of game. Once again, for reasons relating to and not relating to the game itself. For example, this game was made by Red Barrel Games. Red Barrel was a group of former AAA developers who left that part of the industry to start their own indie studio and decided to take a big swing making a first-person exploration-based horror game. Outlast ended up being very, very successful as a game, both in terms of reviews and in terms of its sales. So a lot of eyes were suddenly put on the studio, and just like within the Hollywood film industry, a lot of publishers were now clamoring to create cheap horror games that would yield a big return on investment. However, the game itself was also very innovative. It showed that within this style of game, you could create visceral terror that was as exciting and engaging as anything seen in a more traditional action game like a first-person shooter. Outlast really was a super intense thrill ride, the likes of which hadn't yet been seen within the horror genre. This was an important development because there was another simultaneous and adjacent movement in video games that was happening at the exact same time. That was the walking sim movement. Now, these were games that mechanically were very, very similar. They were first-person, exploration-based adventure games. They did not have combat, and they mostly eschewed any traditional video game mechanics. These games were largely storytelling experiences. You were just supposed to wander around, experience an environment, and experience a story. A lot of them were heavily linear. You wander around, story events happened, you maybe put one thing in another place, but a lot of them didn't even have what you would traditionally call puzzles, let alone inventory systems or mechanics. Amnesia is kind of halfway in between a survival horror game and a walking sim. It has a lot in common with walking sims, especially the importance that it puts upon storytelling, environment, and atmosphere. But it also had some more traditional gamey stuff like a survival horror or a point and click adventure game. You spend a lot of time wandering around, searching for items, taking those items back, and putting them somewhere else. It does have more traditional puzzles, and once again, a lot of them are related to finding items and managing them in your inventory. Outlast, however, showed that you could make a totally different type of game within this same framework. You could make a game that, once again, was eschewing most of the traditional ideas 
systems and mechanics of a normal quote-unquote video game but that also felt like its own things that was visceral that was terrifying and was most of all exciting outlast added in stealth specifically the avoidance of really terrifying enemies and death animations to give the player something to avoid to keep them on their toes and to keep them engaged in the actual act of playing the video game now the stealth in outlast is not very good at all but the use of it is very very clever I think the game is really well designed and the way that it tricks the player into using the stealth and avoiding the enemies is mostly done through good presentation and good scares. In a lot of ways this harks back to Amnesia because, well this is something I didn't mention earlier but I did mention the episode about the game, but in Amnesia a lot of the scares are actually just the developers fucking with the player. The game explicitly says that there's a sanity mechanic and that you need to do certain things in order to stay sane and reduce the amount of weird, surreal, and terrifying meta things that are happening to the player's screen and vision as they're playing. But that was actually a lie. It was basically all randomized effects that the devs put in the game to, once again, mess with the player. Atlas does something kind of similar with the stealth. Not intentionally, but... It's just the stealth in the game is so, so, so bad that I think most players, if they could figure it out fully, would just stop using it. However, the devs make the environment and the enemies so tense and scary that, once again, they sort of trick you into fully engaging with it, even as you're running certain areas over and over and over and verging on rage quitting the game out of frustration. You're still locked in because the game is tense, it's engaging, and it's scary. Now, this is something that all of these games, regardless of specific style or genre, share, which is an emphasis on making the most with what you have. A lot of these games feel kind of unfinished or lightweight in a certain sense, which is something that a lot of people leveled against this genre as a criticism. In the absence of more quote-unquote hardcore mechanics like stats or leveling or, you know, a more fully fleshed out combat and or movement system, people felt like these games were lacking a core. They were lacking a center that the player could actually latch onto and develop as they played the game. However, I would argue that that was never the point or the intention with these games. They were meant to be linear, compact storytelling experiences. You were meant to just kind of move through them in a single direction, experience the things that the game wanted you to experience, and then get out. All the other fun that you could have with the game was meta and communal. Like, you could go online and talk to people about it. You could take a video of yourself playing it and share it with other people. You could stream it live and start a conversation with viewers and other fans of the game in order to extend the experience and get more of a sort of communal thrill out of playing the game. The early 2010s was the time when this online and community aspect of horror started to become very, very important within the wider cultural context. 
This was the era when creepypastas were really, really getting going, and ARGs were also becoming a thing that anybody could start and run. Years after something like I Love Bees was started by Microsoft as a really offbeat way to promote Halo 2, people were starting to do that with their own horror stories and ideas. Things like Ben Drowned were becoming massively, massively popular, and it was something that was available to anyone with an internet connection and a few freeware programs on their computer. This type of horror was really, really appealing to people, especially younger people, who were spending a lot of time online. Once again, you have to put yourself in the mindset of someone in the early 2010s and remember that social media had only been around for a mass audience for a few years. In the era of like MySpace and other similar sites, a lot of people just completely opted out. Even Facebook coming in wasn't until the mid to late 2000s and once again, a lot of people were opting out. By the early 2010s, this stuff had been around for a few years, so you had sites like Facebook and Reddit getting really, really popular, but still feeling very new. People were still trying them out and trying to figure out their own relationship to them. People weren't entirely sure what they wanted from these platforms, and they were figuring it out as they spent more time on these sites. It's really interesting to me to see the impact that this had on horror, and specifically horror video games. People figured out quickly that they liked to talk to other people about horror video games, and they liked to have things to talk to other people about. Any type of game that could give people that kind of fuel for a communal conversation had a better shot at becoming successful and becoming popular than something like a more traditional single-player survival horror experience. While Amnesia and Outlast proved that you could do this successfully in 2010 and 2013 respectively, 2014 was the year that this idea really came into fruition. And it wasn't just with one game, you know, the one that's in the title of this episode and that I'm going to talk about in a second. There were actually multiple games in 2014 that successfully created a sort of community or communal horror experience. The first one is one that I've mostly avoided talking about on this show because it's just not a very good game, but it is a really important game and it's one that's very relevant to this conversation. That is, of course, Five Nights at Freddy's. You guys remember Five Nights at Freddy's? The game with the creepy Chuck E. Cheese style animatronics. You stay the night for some reason at the Chuck E. Cheese, they come alive, they try to kill you, you page through the security cameras, you stop them. Yeah, that game. So when that game came out, it made a huge splash for a few reasons. Number one, it was something people hadn't seen before. Number two, it was aimed at kids, so kids loved it. Although, side note, was it aimed at kids or did kids just really love it? I'm honestly not sure because like my nephew really loved it when he was like super young and I was always kind of like, wait, is this appropriate? Should he be looking at this? And then I would be like, well, it's not my job. It's his parents job. Anyway, I digress. Point is, the game was different. It was fresh and new. It was aimed at kids. And probably the biggest thing that led to it having an enduring legacy, even if once again, it's mostly with young kids was the fact that it had this huge and sprawling backstory 
that was all told through very, very cryptic lore, some within the game and some without. It basically created its own ecosystem and environment in which people could have conversations online, they could create YouTube videos, they could create retellings of the lore, they could write essays and present them either as text or audio or video. And once again, it basically created its own community ecosystem in which there was tons of room for people to play and discuss what was going on with these video games. Five Nights at Freddy's is a mostly meta horror experience. Like I mentioned, the games themselves are not good. And they're not just not good, they're super simple and super repetitive. At this point, there have to be at least a dozen Five Nights at Freddy games, and that's not even including fan games or things that are really, really distant spin-offs. And yet they all pretty much play exactly the same. The only difference between the games is that they seem to get increasingly difficult and frustrating as they go on. There's just not a lot of meat on the bones there. However, the way that they set up that lore system and that whole ecosystem for people to kind of discuss and dissect the backstory of the games is what made the game such an enduring experience. It was really surreal for me to see my nephew reading books about the lore and watching YouTube videos and just looking up facts online about this series that he honestly didn't spend that much time actually playing. Any experience with the games was kind of shallow and unsatisfying, and yet the games had set up this massive, massive playground for people to explore in terms of its story and lore. It seemed weird at the time, but now I see it as just being really, really forward thinking. In a lot of ways, that kind of is the present and future of horror gaming that we live in. Sure, people still make good games and there's still awesome experiences to have strictly within the medium. However, a lot of the most successful and most beloved of these experiences are going to be tied to a wider ecosystem, either intentionally or not, where people can go to discuss theories, postulate, and share their thoughts. If something is completely closed off and doesn't have any sort of meta or community aspect to it, it is intentionally limiting its own reach as a horror game. And I say this as someone who doesn't really have a super strong opinion about this. It's really just an observation and a fact about the way that horror games are marketed and consumed in the modern day. There's definitely some good things about it and some bad things about it, but ultimately it's kind of just the way it is. Now, Five Nights at Freddy is a really good illustration of this, but I think that the best example of how this kind of consumption plays out, especially amongst people who are more core fans of the horror genre and looking for more adult experiences in the horror genre, is the phenomenon around the 2014 demo by Hideo Kojima called P.T. Now, P.T. is a game that comes up on this show all the time, but I've never properly set aside time to talk about it. So here we go. We're doing it now. P.T., short for Playable Teaser, was stealthily released onto the PlayStation Store in 2014. 
It was attributed to a fake developer and generally didn't seem to have any information attached to it. Gamers were instantly intrigued by this mystery and flocked to download this weird game. They were greeted by something far more viscerally terrifying than they probably expected. In PT, you walk through an endlessly looping house. There aren't really any traditional game mechanics in here. You literally just walk around and look at things. There's a zoom function to focus on items and sometimes that seems to interact with the game world, but that's about it. You walk through an endlessly looping house, basically a short series of corridors with a couple of rooms attached that at the end loops again. Each time that you go through the door and start the loop over, something has changed. It could be subtle, like the general appearance of the house, or it could be dramatic, like a huge shift in lighting or one of the game's now legendary horror events. PT was filled with these events, and they were really, really terrifying because they were all randomized. As you move throughout the house, you might encounter a Lynchian fetus in the bathroom sink or be stalked and killed by a giant monstrous woman. These things were not just unsettling in and of themselves, but also because, once again, they were random. You didn't have the cause and effect of Outlast, where you would fail at stealth and then get killed by an enemy. Here things just happened. There was no rhyme or reason. There was no point to this game. It was just really, really fucking scary. Presented in a kind of hyper-realistic visual style and full of really unnerving touches like creepy radio dispatches and really, really intense framing and presentation of disturbing images, PT was terrifying. And if that's all it had been, it would still be an achievement in and of itself. However, that's not all it was. At the end of the game, people discovered that there was a final puzzle. This puzzle was extremely obtuse and more or less impossible to solve without already knowing how to do it. In fact, at the time and in the years following, there was a lot of speculation that the first people to solve this final puzzle did it by accident. I think now it's been confirmed that some of the first people did in fact do it by accident. Regardless, it was a puzzle that was so weird, so obtuse, the solution so wacky that it sparked a lot of debate and a lot of discussion. Those who did solve this puzzle, however, were greeted with a very short teaser trailer for a new game called Silent Hills. It was supposed to be directed by Hideo Kojima and Guillermo del Toro and set to star Norman Reedus as the unnamed main character. The whole PT experience from finding this weird, cursed seeming game to uncovering a trailer for a new entry in a legendary horror series set the internet on fire. Gamers were freaking out at the prospect of this new Silent Hill game. The combination of PT's creepy thrills and the brain-busting ARG that led to the trailer's discovery created a mountain of hype, and one that personally I don't think any game could ever have matched. 
And ultimately, we never even got to find out if the game could hold up to that, as shortly after PT was released, Konami cancelled Silent Hills as part of their messy breakup with Hideo Kojima. This one single action undertaken by Konami might be the most influential thing that has happened in horror games over the last 10 years. Even more so than PT itself, even more so than the original Silent Hill series, whose estimation in the eyes of gamers has only grown during that time. Their decision to cancel Silent Hills might still be more influential than all of that combined. What happened in the wake of this cancellation was nothing short of the creation of a new cottage industry surrounding PT-style games. Gamers were desperate to see more stuff like PT, and they were also desperate to see something that could fill the void of the now-canceled Silent Hills. Dozens of Kickstarters popped up, all promising new horror games made by indie teams that would be just as good as PT, if not better, because they would be full games. Pretty quickly, however, two problems arose. Number one, it's really hard to make a video game especially one that uses a hyper-realistic visual style and is aiming to match the polish of a game made by a very experienced team at a AAA publisher. That was just not gonna happen. Allison Road was never gonna happen, and surprise, it didn't happen. The other problem here is that the blueprint left by PT was incredibly vague and hard to follow. When you break down PT into its component parts, you don't have a lot to work with. PT was a super short game. It literally was just a demo. There wasn't much to it. It didn't have a story. It didn't even really have the obtuse lore of a Five Nights at Freddy's game. It just had a looping hallway and a bunch of scary occurrences that were randomized. Even worse, the one traditional game mechanic included here, the aforementioned final puzzle, was so weird, obtuse, and hard to solve that any attempt to replicate it would just make your game significantly worse. I mean, we're talking NES era, look at the last page of the manual to solve the puzzle type shit. This is not really good game design, it's just frustrating. Even worse, if you look at the meta impact that PT had, trying to replicate that would be even difficult and maybe less satisfying for developers. A lot of the obsession around PT didn't really come from the game itself, but more the things that it promised, like a new Silent Hill game or a new horror game by Hideo Kojima. Trying to get people to come together as a community and appreciate your game in the same way that they appreciate PT was really only inviting a lot of weird toxicity or asking people to become scarily obsessed with your game, neither of which I think any indie dev is actually equipped to handle. Now I say all this not to take away from PT or what it achieved, but just to say that it's a really hard act to follow and it's maybe not exactly the kind of thing you want to replicate. PT is an amazing game. You can still find some very accurate fan recreations floating around the internet, and I think it's worth trying to find one that works on your computer and playing it. It's a really, really cool game, 
It's really, really creepy. However, I do get pretty dismayed by the importance that gamers put upon PT. Once again, PT wasn't a full game. It was literally just a short demo, a creepy little thing that was supposed to lead into a larger game that, as I've said before, most likely would not have looked or played or felt like PT. I think the final product would have had more in common with the game that Kojima ultimately made with the same creative team, Death Stranding, than it would the game PT. I think looking at more seasoned developers, we can see that they understood this, as the influence of PT, while still felt, was a lot more subtly woven into their games. I think the biggest and most popular game to come out bearing a really strong PT influence was Resident Evil 7. Resident Evil 7 was a massive departure for the series. It was a reinvention of a group of games that over the last decade had grown increasingly stale. A lot of the seeds planted in that game came directly from PT. The game was in first person, it was a lot more slow paced. For the first half of the game, combat was not a priority and instead, stealth was. Large segments of the game are given over to slow paced, atmospheric, and cinematic scene setting. Although Resident Evil 7 is a unique game that has its own vibe distinct from PT, it's hard not to see the influence on PT, especially coming a few years after that game, giving the developers time to digest what had happened and come up with their own spin on it. In the indie world, however, it was more like an arms race to see who could get a PT-type game out the door first. Unsurprisingly, this mindset led to a lot of cancelled projects and a few that released and bombed because they were, you know, kind of terrible. The most popular game in the indie or indie-jacent scene to come out post-PT, however, was undoubtedly Layers of Fear. Developed by Bloober Team, a company that I still kind of have a love-hate relationship with, Layers of Fear is, while not their worst game, Let's say it's almost their worst game. Layers of Fear is definitely a very PT-influenced game, and it definitely came out in an attempt to capitalize off of the hype of PT. Arriving about a year after the cancellation of Silent Hills and the cancellation of most, if not all, of the big indie projects that had popped up in the wake of said cancellation, the runway was cleared for the arrival of Layers of Fear, and it was very well received. Gamers were beyond hyped to have a relatively PT-style game to play, one that provided them with a lot of the same thrills and chills that they found in that game. The big idea that Layers of Fear borrowed from PT was spatial distortion. The idea that a room can move and change around you without you noticing. You might turn your back on a door, turn back around, and see a wall. It's an idea that the game returns to time and time again, and it's basically where all of the horror in the game comes from. Well, that is, besides the game's main antagonist, a blatant knockoff of Lisa, the woman from PT, right down to the animations that play as she picks you up and kills you. 
Everything about Layers of Fear to me was just so bland, boring, and uninspired. Sure, it did nail that spatial distortion idea, but the environment itself is just not much to look at. The story, if you can even call it that, is underwritten and undercooked. The voice acting is abysmal. I just don't really have anything good to say about Layers of Fear, and I think it shows how bland and uninspiring this type of game can be when it's made simply to copy from someone else's work and to create something that cashes in on hype. This has unfortunately been most of the long tail influence of PT. Indie games that try and recreate the magic but end up failing spectacularly. It seems that once a year, every year since Layers of Fear, somebody tries to make a PT type game. And it gets a lot of hype, people tell you to play it, and usually it ends up being shit. This was kind of a holding pattern that was broken in 2020 by Visage. Visage is a game that we covered for the show, and it's a game that I have a lot of fondness for. Or maybe respect is a better word, because Visage at the time I played it was easily the scariest game I had ever played. It was terrifying, and the way that it presented its horror and its horror scenarios was really, really wild and unique. It seemed like a paradox to me because it was simultaneously the most PT-influenced game to ever get a final retail release, but also the best. Those two ideas, however, weren't intrinsically linked. The influence that seemed to pull from PT was mostly in its hyper-realistic visual style and its huge doses of surrealism. For example, it might present you with a constantly shifting room or pull the rug out from under you and show you some really wild physics-defying shit just to get a reaction from you. It also included PT-style monsters that would stalk and kill you. However, they seem to also bear just as much influence from other games like Outlast. Visage ended up being a really unique and interesting experience, one that I mostly recommended on the strength of its spectacle. It was so wild to see a game be that scary and that intense. It was something that I felt like everyone who is a fan of the genre should play. However, I think a lot of those great moments came in spite of the PT influence and not because of it. Visage is a game that I struggle to recommend sometimes, and at others I even struggle to call good. It's an insanely frustrating game. It's full of multiple puzzles that all seem almost as obtuse as that final puzzle from PT. It also has kind of wonky controls and a terrible inventory system, and for a game that can roughly be broken up into four chapters, it has a pretty terrible batting average. Two of those chapters are high watermarks for horror gaming. One of them is like one of the worst things I've ever played. And the last one is just sort of a confusing, muddled mess of a conclusion to the game. A lot of my excitement surrounding Visage was that someone had just made something that was really creepy, scary, and cool, and contained moments that were so well presented and well directed that I felt like they were, once again, high watermarks for the genre of horror gaming. It begged the question though, how long are we going to keep doing this? 
How much more can you do with the influence of PT before you break off and do your own thing? Does classifying something as PT influenced mean that it's just going to be really, really frustratingly difficult and annoyingly vague? Or does it mean that it's going to actually try and deliver on the promise of PT? I guess to me, the bigger question is, is the promise of PT even worth clinging to? As I discussed in a recent Patreon episode, I feel like people's obsession with Silent Hill and people's like need for new Silent Hill content is actually holding the genre back as a whole. After playing Visage, I was kind of starting to wonder if the same thing wasn't happening with PT. Were people treating this extremely short and slight demo as a guidebook for how to make a full game? If so, I think that's a little bit misguided, and I don't think that's going to result in high-quality, full-length games coming out the other side. Regardless, it does seem that every year we get one game that tries to mine the excitement that gamers still hold for the promise of PT. In 2020, it was Visage. This year, it's Madison. This is basically the kind of stuff I was thinking about as I went into playing Madison. Next time, Monica will join and we'll talk about if the game was any good and if it actually delivered on all of that promise and hope. I'll see you then. Yeah.